This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marlo Diane. Forbidden Dragon. Dot blogspot. Dot com. The Return of the Native, by Thomas Hardy. Book One, The Three Women. Two, Humanity appears upon the scene, hand in hand with trouble. Along the road walked an old man. He was white-headed as a mountain, bowed in the shoulders, and faded in general aspect. He wore a glazed hat, an ancient boat cloak, and shoes. His brass buttons bearing an anchor upon their face. In his hand was a silver-headed walking stick, which he used as a veritable third leg, persevering, dotting the ground with its point at every few inches' interval. One would have said that he had been in his day a naval officer of some sort or other. Before him stretched the long, laborious road, dry, empty, and white. It was quite open to the heath on each side, and bisected that vast, dark surface like the parting line on a head of black hair, diminishing and bending away on the furthest horizon. The old man frequently stretched his eyes ahead to gaze over the track that he had yet to traverse. At length, He discerned a long distance in front of him, a moving spot, which appeared to be a vehicle, and it proved to be going the same way as that in which he himself was journeying. It was the single atom of life that the scene contained, and it only served to render the general loneliness more evident. Its rate of advance was slow, and the old man gained upon it sensibly. Drew nearer, he perceived it to be a spring van, ordinary in shape, but singular in color, this being a lurid red. The driver walked beside it, and like his van, he was completely red. One dye of that tincture covered his clothes, the cap upon his head, his boots, his face, and his hands. He was not temporarily overlaid with the color. It permeated him. The old man knew the meaning of this. The traveller with a cart was a reddleman, a person whose vocation it was to supply farmers with redding for their sheep. He was one of a class rapidly becoming extinct in Wessex, filling at present in the rural world the place which, during the last century, the dodo occupied in the world of animals. He is a curious, interesting, and nearly perished link between obsolete forms of life and those which generally prevail. The decayed officer, by degrees, came up alongside his fellow wayfarer and wished him good evening. The reddleman turned his head and replied in sad and occupied tones. He was young. And his face, if not exactly handsome, approached so near to handsome that nobody would have contradicted an assertion that it really was so in its natural color. 
His eye, which glared so strangely through his stain, was in itself attractive, keen as that of a bird of prey, and blue as autumn mist. He had neither whisker nor mustache, which allowed the soft curves of the lower part of his face to be apparent. His lips were thin, and though, as it seemed, compressed by thought, there was a pleasant twitch at the corners now and then. He was clothed throughout in a tight-fitting suit of corduroy, excellent in quality, not much worn, and well chosen for its purpose, but deprived of its original color by his trade. It showed to advantage the good shape of his figure. A certain well-to-do air about the man suggested that he was not poor for his degree. The natural query of an observer would have been, why should such a promising being as this have hidden his prepossessing exterior by adopting that singular occupation? After replying to the old man's greeting, he showed no inclination to continue in talk, although he still walked side by side, for the elder traveller seemed to desire company. There were no sounds but that of the booming wind upon the stretch of tawny herbage around them, the crackling wheels, the tread of the men, and the footsteps of the two shaggy ponies which drew the van. They were small, hardy animals, of a breed between Galloway and Exmoor, and were known as heath-croppers here. Now, as they thus pursued their way, the reddleman occasionally left his companion's side, and stepping behind the van, looked into its interior through a small window. The look was always anxious. He would then return to the old man, who made another remark about the state of the country and so on, to which the reddleman again abstractedly replied, and then again they would lapse into silence. The silence conveyed to neither any sense of awkwardness. In these lonely places, wayfarers, after a first greeting, frequently plod on for miles without speech. Contiguity amounts to a tacit conversation where, otherwise than in cities, such contiguity can be put an end to on the merest inclination. And where not to put an end to it is intercourse in itself. Possibly these two might not have spoken again till their parting, had it not been for the Redleman's visits to his van. When he returned from his fifth time of looking in, the old man said, "'You have something inside there besides your load.' "'Yes.' "'Somebody who wants looking after?' "'Yes.' Not long after this, a faint cry sounded from the interior. The Redleman hastened to the back, looked in, and came away again. "'You have a child there, my man.' "'No, sir. I have a woman.' "'The deuce you have! Why did she cry out?' "'Oh, she has fallen asleep and not much used to travelling. She's uneasy and keeps dreaming.' "'A young woman?' "'Yes, a young woman.' "'That would have interested me forty years ago. Perhaps she's your wife.' "'My wife,' said the other bitterly, "'she's above mating with such as I, "'but there's no reason why I should tell you about that.' "'That's true. 
and there's no reason why you should not. What harm can I do to you or to her? The Rettleman looked into the old man's face. Well, sir, he said at last, I knew her before today, though perhaps it should have been better if I had not. But she's nothing to me, and I am nothing to her, and she wouldn't have been in my van if any better carriage had been there to take her. Where, may I ask? At Anglebury. I know the town well. What was she doing there? Oh, not much, to gossip about. However, she's tired to death now, and not at all well, and that's what makes her so restless. She's dropped off into a nap but an hour ago, and to well do her good. A nice-looking girl, no doubt? You would say so. The other traveller turned his eyes with interest towards the van window, and, without withdrawing them, said, I presume I might look in upon her. No, said the Rettleman abruptly. It is getting too dark for you to see much of her, and more than that, I have no right to allow you. Thank God she sleeps so well. I hope she won't wake till she's home. Who is she? One of the neighborhood? "'Tis no matter who. Excuse me. "'It is not that girl of Bloom's End, who is talked about more or less lately. "'If so, I know her, and I can guess what has happened. "'Tis no matter. Now, sir, I am sorry to say that we shall have soon to part company. "'My ponies are tired, and I have farther to go, and I am going to rest them under this bank for an hour.' "'The elder traveller nodded his head indifferently.' and the Rettleman turned his horses and van in upon the turf, saying, "'Good night!' The old man replied, and proceeded on his way as before. The Rettleman watched his form as it diminished to a speck on the road, and became absorbed in the thickening films of night. He then took some hay from a truss which was slung up under the van, and, throwing a portion of it in front of the horses, made a pad of the rest, where he laid on the ground beside his vehicle. Upon this he sat down, leaning his back against the wheel. From the interior a low, soft breathing came to his ear. It appeared to satisfy him, and he musingly surveyed the scene, as if considering the next step that he should take. To do things musingly, and by small degrees, seemed, indeed, to be a duty in the Egdon valleys at this transitional hour. For there was that in the condition of the heath itself, which resembled protracted and halting dubiousness. It was the quality of the repose appertaining to the scene. This was not the repose of actual stagnation, but the apparent repose of incredible slowness, a condition of healthy life so nearly resembling the tupper of death, it is a noticeable thing of its sort. To exhibit the inertness of the desert, and at the same time to be exercising powers akin to those of the meadow, and even of the forest, awakened in those who thought of it the attentiveness usually engendered by understatement and reserve. The scene before the Rettleman's eyes was a gradual series of ascents, from the level of the road backward into the heart of the heath. It embraced hillocks, pits, ridges, acclivities, one behind the other, till all was finished by a high hill cutting against the still light sky. The traveller's eye hovered about these things for a time, 
and finally settled upon one noteworthy object up there. It was a barrow. This bossy projection of earth above its natural level occupied the loftiest ground of the loneliest height that the heath contained. Although from the vale it appeared but as a wart on an Atlantean bow, its actual bulk was great. It formed the pole and axis of this heathery world. As the resting man looked on the barrow, he became aware that its summit, hitherto the highest object in the whole prospect round, was surmounted by something higher. It rose from the semi-globular mound like a spike from a helmet. The first instinct of an imaginative stranger might have been to suppose it the person of one of the Celts who built the barrow. So far had all modern date withdrawn from the scene. It seemed a sort of last man among them, musing for a moment before dropping into eternal night with the rest of his race. There the form stood, motionless as the hill beneath. Above the plain rose the hill, above the hill rose the barrow, and above the barrow rose the figure. Above the figure was nothing that could be mapped elsewhere than on a celestial globe. Such a perfect, delicate, and necessary finish did the figure give to the dark pile of hills that it seemed to be the only obvious justification of their outline. Without it, there was the dome without the lantern. With it, the architectural demands of the mass were satisfied. The scene was strangely homogeneous, in that the veil, the upland, the barrow, and the figure above it amounted only to unity. Looking at this or that member of the group was not observing a complete thing, but a fraction of a thing. The form was so much like an organic part of the entire motionless structure that to see it move would have impressed the mind as a strange phenomenon. Immobility being the chief characteristic of that whole which the person formed portion of, the discontinuance of immobility in any quarter suggested confusion. Yet that is what happened. The figure perceptibly gave up its fixity, shifted a step or two, and turned round. As if alarmed, it descended on the right side of the barrow, with the glide of a water-drop down a bud, and then vanished. The movement had been sufficient to show more clearly the characteristics of the figure, and that it was a woman's. The reason of her sudden displacement now appeared. With her dropping out of sight on the right side, a newcomer, bearing a burden, protruded into the sky on the left side, ascended the tumulus, and deposited the burden on the top. A second followed, then a third, a fourth, a fifth, and ultimately the whole barrow was peopled with burdened figures. The only intelligible meaning in this sky-backed pantomime of silhouettes was that the woman had no relation to the forms who had taken her place, was sedulously avoiding these, and had come thither for another object than theirs. The imagination of the observer clung by preference to that vanished, solitary figure, 
as to something more interesting, more important, more likely to have a history worth knowing than these newcomers, and unconsciously regarded them as intruders. But they remained, and established themselves, and the lonely person who hitherto had been queen of the solitude did not at present seem likely to return. End of two. Recorded by Marlo Diane. March 27, 2006. Piscid West, Prince Edward Island.